around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and I'm going to be joined by our senior reporter Catherine Kennedy in a moment to do a roundup of the news stories we've been covering in the last month. Later, Catherine will be speaking to our special guest, Rail Accident Investigation Branch Chief Inspector Simon French. He'll be talking to her in more depth about the final report into the fatal Carmont derailment in August 2020, before reflecting back on how the rail industry has changed and improved since the Rail Accident Investigation Branch was first set up, and Simon approaches his retirement at the end of this month. Before we come on to that, let's talk about the other main news stories in the last month. Obviously, the Ukraine conflict has been dominating the mainstream media, and it's heartbreaking to see the human cost of what's going on there. And there is clearly going to be a need for a major infrastructure rebuilding program in the future there too. Yeah, I really hope it won't be long before we can focus on that rather than the humanitarian side of things there. But if you do want to help in the short term, engineering charity Redar, of which NCE is a patron, they have launched an appeal and are asking NCE's readers and listeners of the Engineers Collective to get involved. Yes, the charity, which specialises in rebuilding communities affected by natural disasters or war, is asking the engineering community to raise at least £40,000 to help Ukrainians on the ground. All the money raised will be spent on training Ukrainians to have the skills they need, such as building shelters and sourcing clean water. Red Arrow set up a dedicated Ukraine appeal page on justgiving.com. To contribute, go to the website and search for Red R and do give generously if you can. Closer to home, the conflict has also raised questions around the UK energy generation capabilities and what's being done to bolster supplies to move both move away from Russian oil and gas supplies and also fast track the route to carbon net zero too. Catherine, you've been looking into that in more detail. What projects are underway and what's in the pipeline? Yeah, that's right. So a whole range of energy options are being considered by the government and obviously this as well as kind of helping improve energy security given the situation in the Ukraine it does also tie into the net zero targets so potentially it could could accelerate a lot of projects in terms of large nuclear uh, Boris Johnson is reportedly keen to revive plans for Wilva the power plant on Anglesey Um, so initially Wilva had been in the running as a potential site for a large-scale power plant but the decision was taken to push forward with Sizewell C instead but it looks like Wilva may be back on the cards um, in addition the UK is looking at a 20-year extension of the Sizewell B nuclear energy plant so that's another suggestion all of these are suggestions nothing is concrete yet in terms of SMRs then so small modular reactors Rolls-Royce uh, the company they are involved in in developing these, and they've called on the government to speed up the rollout of them. So SMRs potentially could be less expensive than traditional nuclear because of their smaller size. And Rolls Royce has submitted designs for a couple of different sites recently, but there's a lot of checks that are needed, and those aren't expected to come online until the 2030s. So Rolls Royce is apparently calling for this to be. Um, accelerated. Then in terms of renewables, experts have said wind and solar should be explored as other low-cost sources of energy. There's also a lot of different tidal plans on the agenda which could contribute. Um, And then there has been plans as well to build a second power station at Crookham Dam in Scotland. So the final round of public consultation events has been taking place and Drax will start to look for planning permission from the Scottish government. Uh, So a decision is expected in 2023. So there is a lot going on, a lot of different ideas 
and it will be interesting to see what what is taken forward. Yes, there are plenty of projects in the pipeline, but nothing that can be immediately delivered, it doesn't seem. But the Ukraine conflict certainly seems to have added more urgency to the energy conversations, even than we saw in the lead up to COP26, I think. So the, the other stories that caught my eye this month are two that you've been reporting on, Catherine, and both involving HS2. One was the challenge that some suppliers have had in getting paid with 8% of invoices paid late last year. And the other, which is unrelated to the payment issues as far as I know, is the collapse of subcontractor Roadbridge, which was delivering contracts for the, on the project for um, the joint ventures Align and EKFB. So tell me what you've uncovered about the payment practices first, Catherine. Yes, so this was from a freedom of information request. So HS2 paid 950 invoices late. Um, in the it was in the 12 months from the 1st of January till the 31st of December 2021. So those 956 invoices are 8% of the total invoices paid. And as of February 2022, which is when the FI came back to us, they had 119 invoices currently overdue payment. Um, and their payment, the agreed terms is 30 day, 30 day period to be paid in. So we've spoken to uh, James Dean, who is the chief executive of tech startup Sensat. And he has said that his company had a really bad experience with delayed payments and was quite frustrated at the time they've spent chasing chasing it up. So he said his in, their invoices were over 300 days late before they were partially settled. So I suppose it's important as well to say in 2021, the HS2 did uh, pay 10,502 invoices on time. So that was 92% within the 30 days. But there clearly is still an issue there. And ACE Chief Executive Stephen Marcos Jones has really emphasized to us the importance of timely payments. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, interesting to see those figures in black and white. And we're kind of looking into it all a bit more. Yeah, it's also a particular challenge for SMEs, isn't it? When HS2 are trying to work with more SMEs, it's, it perhaps could put them off wanting to work with the project. Exactly. And I think that was uh, one of James's points as well, that SMEs are bringing a lot to the project, uh, but this is making it difficult for them. I think HS2 did make the point that some of the late payments are outside of their own control, though, didn't they? Some of them isn't down to their payment practices. It's just an issue with setting up the accounts and things. That's right. They said there are a lot of uh, different reasons and, you know, sometimes it can be changed in supplier details or supplier set up or checks are needed. So there can be other reasons. That's right. So let's come on to the Roadbridge story. What led up to the collapse and, and what are the implications for HS2? So Grant Thornton, they were appointed as receivers uh, to deal with the, the issue and Roadbridge reportedly actually owed the Bank of Ireland 35 million euros. And the firm has said its collapse is a result of insurmountable financial challenges. Um, in terms of HS2 work, um, as you said, they were working on contracts for the Align JV and then the EKFB JV. So most of the work has been delivered for the Align contract. So this included earthworks, drainage, utilities, pavement groundworks at the South Portal site to the west of London. Um, and then for the EKFB contract, we Roadbridge was working as part of a joint venture with Tarmac. So that was mostly on earthworks and access roads. Um, so HS2 has said Align and EKFB are both in talks about how to move forward and contingency plans are in place and talks ongoing with Tarmac as well. So they said they're monitoring the situation and, and working out a way forward. I guess we might find out more as um, the process proceeds on the going into receivership. Yeah. So sticking with rail now, let's talk about a story we've been following for a number of months, if not the whole year now, and that's National Highway's plans to infill or demolish historic railway structures that fall under its care, a plan that met with outrage from engineers, historians and communities alike. But for once, I think it's quite good news on this one. There have been 50 structures that were originally earmarked for demolition or infilling that may be spared after an independent review of National Highway's plans found that they could actually be readily preserved for active travel schemes. A government order review carried out by Sustrans concluded that two-thirds of the 75 structures earmarked for demolition or infilling could actually be useful as part of the national cycle network or as local cycling or walking routes. Um, 
I think you should point out that this is a desk-based study at this point and the feasibility didn't actually factor in structural assessments of those bridges. So they're not quite in the clear yet, but I think the conversation appears to be a lot more positive and forward-thinking than it has been previously. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. The other major news story that we've been reporting on this month, which we mentioned earlier, is the Carmont derailment. NCE is marking its 50th anniversary this year and reporting on engineering failures and infrastructure accidents has been a key part of our news coverage throughout. But the events that led up to the incident at Carmont were strikingly different from those that we've reported on before. It was one of the first serious engineering failures that we can directly attribute to the extreme weather resulting from climate change. So joining us to discuss the issues presented at Carmont for the rail industry, we have Rail Accident Investigation Branch Chief Inspector of Rail Accidents, Simon French. Simon joined the organisation in 2004 and became Chief Inspector in 2015, but he's set to retire at the end of March. Before joining the Rail Accident Investigation Branch, Simon spent six years as Head of Operations and Safety with the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, which is better known today as High Speed One. Before that, he spent 10 years working on design and operational safety for a wide range of railway projects in the UK and overseas, and six years in various operational roles within British Rail. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Simon. Uh, Good afternoon. So the derailment at Carmont in August 2020 occurred after a passenger train collided with debris washed from a drain onto the track following very heavy rainfall. Tragically, three people died and the remaining six people on the train were injured. And following the accident, the real accident investigation branch undertook an investigation. Your final report Simon ran to almost 300 pages, so this may be a tall order, but can you explain what the key learning points for the industry are from Carmont? Certainly. I mean, this was a uh, painful reminder of the hazard posed to railway infrastructure by intense rainfall events. And a key learning from this is the need to work out a way of responding to these events in the future. A proportionate response. We don't want to close the railway every time it rains, but we do need to think very hard about using the information that we can get from modern technology to inform operational decision making. So that for me is a key learning to come from this. Another area of learning relates to the construction of the drainage system at Carmont. Our investigation identified that as designed, the system would have been capable of accommodating the water flows on the morning of 12th of August, 2020. However, the drain hadn't been installed as designed and therefore a key area of learning for us is for the industry to think about the control of change during construction. Now we understand, of course, that on every construction site, change is needed. Very rarely can you build exactly as per the design. And this is a reminder of the need for process to ensure that the implications of change to construction um, are understood, evaluated by the designers. So that for us is a second key area of of learning. We also think the industry needs to step back and think about the need to provide information, procedures, and the training that is needed by operational controllers to respond effectively to this sort of event. We've also recommended that the industry think very hard about how it can better understand the risks associated with the operation 
of those older trains which predate modern standards relating to crashworthiness. So those, those for me, are the key areas of learning that have come from our investigation. And going back to, to one of those areas then, do you think that the industry needs to gain better control of change management and checking as built with the original design? Um, can you talk us through that a little bit more? Yes, I mean, to some extent, we're back to, to some basics here. Of course, we're building things which will last very often for 100 years, certainly what they're designed to last for or even longer. But we need to be absolutely sure as we, as we make those important change, changes that are necessary during construction, we understand exactly what we're doing. There was a sad irony to what happened uh, at Carmont. I mean, the, the drainage system there had been installed to manage risk. There to manage the risk of earthwork failure, and it had been installed in a way which introduced some unintended and tragic consequences. So it's really a reminder, not just the rail industry, but I would suggest, Catherine, it's a reminder to the entire construction industry that the basics, the basic process of technical queries, a reference back to the designer, and then the production of as-built drawings which can then be fed through to the future maintainer. All of these basics really do matter. And this is a vivid illustration of why we need to remember that it's not just paperwork. It has an awful lot to do with the safety of the asset in the future, how it will be inspected and maintained. So that, for me, is a, is a, is a strong lesson that's come out of this. Uh, and, and, and I hope throughout the construction industry, people will be looking at this and thinking through are we doing this right? Is there more we can do to ensure that we understand the implication of changes during construction? Yeah, it's interesting that the the intention was there to make it safer, but things kind of got lost a little bit along the way. Yeah. Well, that's that's right. You know, I described it as a sad irony, but it is it is just that um, the rail industry is investing an awful lot of money in making its infrastructure more resilient. Uh, given given the challenges of the, U, the British climate, which can only be exacerbated by climate change, so there is there is money being spent, and this is precisely what's been done here. It was to protect trains from future landslips or rockfalls. Unfortunately, this was really down at the level of detail. Something went wrong at the level of detail, not at principal level, but at the level of detail. So that 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 is that is a strong piece of learning. Mm -hmm. And in your 18 years with the Real Accident Investigation Branch, you must have reported on hundreds of accidents with numerous different causes. So how significant was climate change in triggering the derailment at Carmont? Well, it's a good question. We, we thought hard about that. I would start by saying this investigation is not really about climate change. Intense and volatile weather events are not a new factor. In fact, uh, there had been a number of landslips in the past at Carmont, at this location, including one that derailed a train long as ago at 1915. So the risk posed by earthworks or drainage failure as a consequence of intense rainfall has been around for, for, for some considerable time. So it's not a new risk. Clearly, climate change is a factor. And we can't say that the, the storm at Carmont on that particular day can be directly traced to climate change. What we can say, and this is confirmed by uh, Dane Slingo's report, it's commissioned by uh, Network Rail, we can say that rainfall, extreme rainfall events are becoming more commonplace in the UK and in particular in Scotland. So the risk is gradually rising as we see more volatile, extreme weather events. But the risk itself is not new. However, our ability to manage this risk is changing because we now have technologies that allow us to see the weather uh, as it's happening, also to predict it shortly before it occurs. Even this sort of summer convective storm, we can actually see it approaching. So, Yes, climate change is a factor, and of course we're not disregarding it. It can only reinforce the need for the industry to think hard about the management of this risk, and that's precisely what it's doing. But it's not a new risk. It's been there for a while. It's been there pretty well since the railways were built. So, yeah, 
it's a it's it's a factor, but this investigation, I must stress, really isn't about climate change. It's about the management of weather risk and a known risk that's been around for some time. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And and going forward, then I suppose on that note, what would you say are the challenges for the industry when it comes to managing the risk to infrastructure posed by extreme weather? And is that where those technologies that you're talking about come in? How does that all work? Okay. Well, the industry's approach to the management of uh, the risks to its infrastructure caused by intense rainfall and other weather events has tended to focus on high-risk locations. There's nothing wrong with that. It's logical. It says there is a finite amount of resource. There is a huge number of earthworks, a number of bridges subject to scour. There's a massive number of locations. And the railway industry's approach has been to say, well, let's let's identify the high-risk locations and focus, focus our resource on those locations. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly logical. That's, that's the place to start. However, when you get these very extreme weather events, and the event at Carmont would be expected at, at that location about once in 100 years, it wasn't just intense rainfall, but very intense rainfall for a lo- unusually long duration. So quite an unusual event. Once in 100 years at that location, but over the country in a whole, you have quite a number of these events occurring in any given year. And when they occur, they endanger not just the infrastructure that is known to be at risk, but other locations which are not known to be at risk. So I think the challenge for the industry is to think about how it manages the general risk to its infrastructure when you have an extreme event. If you like, it's beyond, way beyond the design norm. And you're now looking at something quite extreme that requires some sort of precautionary response. So that's the challenge. And the challenge is to fine tune it, to get this right. Because I'm absolutely committed to railway safety. And I can see that we don't want to stop the railway every time it rains. That cannot be the safest solution. Driving people onto the roads in bad weather doesn't sound like safety to me. So what we're looking for is to fine tune the approach so that we can take precautionary measures such as slowing trains down when we know we've had an extreme event or are about to have an extreme event. Whereas those areas which are not subject to that extreme event, trains can continue to operate normally. Now, that is a challenge. It's quite a it's quite a shift in the approach to the management of rainfall risk. But I think it's it's necessary. I think Carmont highlights the risks and climate change. Yes, over time, it will exacerbate its risks. So I think that's that's the challenge. But it's also it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to get it right. It's an opportunity to balance risk, the risk of running trains against the disruption and, yes, safety risk of stopping stopping trains. So we've got to get that balance right. And the challenge is there, and as always, as is often the case, technology provides a way forward. It allows us to apply a precautionary principle, not everywhere, but where we need it and when we need it. Mm-hmm. And if you were, uh, I imagine, going down that targeted approach of applying measures where you need it, that would be very difficult without technology? It would It would be more difficult. I mean, okay. in the case of Carmont, even without the technology to show that there had been an extreme weather event in that area, even without that, there were other signals. There were a number of other infrastructure failures, two to the south and two to the north of Carmont, that gave an indicate could have given an indication to control that there was an issue in that area. Something unusual had occurred. Now, I've been a railway controller myself in my early career. And I know how difficult the job can be. Suddenly, when you get this sort of event, you're getting data from left, right and centre. Computer systems are telling you stuff. Phones are ringing. And before you know it, you're, you're overwhelmed. And I think it's, it really is important for the industry to think about how it supports the people who have the difficult job of making operational decisions 
in real time, often in the early hours of the morning, when you're getting a lot of information, information, sometimes even conflicting information. And I think that really matters. And part of that is about equipment. It's about computers and radio systems and all this sort of stuff. And part of it is about training. And it's about procedures, giving people ready-made procedures. If you give people procedures and you enable them to practice those procedures, you give them the confidence to make the right decisions at the right time uh, without expecting people somehow to work out what the right thing to do is in real time in a very short period of time, in a matter of minutes sometimes. So we have made recommendations in this area for Network Rail to look very closely at its operational control functions and ensure that the people who work in those doing that difficult job have the support they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a real mixture of changes. And I guess it makes sense to make people's job as doable as possible. Yeah. And we've we've mentioned um, that you must have looked at a lot of accidents during your career. But can we take a bit of a step back in time further and discuss the incidents that actually resulted in the formation of the Real Accident Investigation Branch? Yes. I mean, I'd start by going back quite a long way. The rail industry, if you go back to its early days, has learned through bitter experience. It has learned by understanding the causes of accidents and then implementing additional measures. So we go back to the very early days. It became very clear very quickly that you needed to interlock signals with points. You needed to have block working to keep trains one to a section. And you needed continuous brakes because when trains came apart, if the back half rolled backwards, it was that you had disastrous consequences. So those sort of those 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 lessons were learned through bitter experience. And the rail industry has learned, continued to progress in that way. Now, the incident that led directly to the creation of the RAIB was the catastrophic collision of two trains at Labrick Grove on the 5th of October. 1999. Now, this was a seismic event in terms of railway safety. It made a huge uh, difference to the way that railway safety was viewed. There was a public inquiry. It was um, chaired by Lord Cullen. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in railway safety to to Google it and find a copy of the report. It's quite a fat report. It's worth looking at. Um, his, His public inquiry made a number of recommendations. And one of, well, one area of recommendation related to the creation of an independent body for the investigation of accidents. Now, prior to RAIB, accidents have been investigated by Her Majesty's Railway Inspectorate, it's now the ORR. And they've done that for many years. It's a tradition of the Railway Inspectorate investigating accidents. But Lord Cullen saw a number of arguments for an independent body because ORR, as HMRI as it was, as the regulator, approved new infrastructure and had an oversight role in respect of railway safety. And it was felt by Lord Cullen you needed to have a body that wasn't part of the industry and wasn't the regulator, was was separate from the regulator. And he recommended that the same model should apply in rail, as already applied in the air and the marine industries. At the time, there was already the air accident investigation branch and a marine accident investigation branch. So he recommended the creation of a rail accident investigation branch. He made the recommendation in 2003, an Act of Parliament, Transport and Safety Act 2003, created the role of the RAIB, And it gave the powers to the RAIB that we needed because being independent means very little unless you have legal powers that enable you to investigate thoroughly. So the legislation was put in place. And soon after, a chief inspector, the first chief inspector, Carolyn Griffiths, was appointed and the RAIB was created. So that was the background. It was an acceptance that safety learning is a good thing. Independent safety learning is really important. And to to ensure that independence, the best way to approach it was to create an organisation that has no function other than the improvement of rail safety. We don't prosecute. 
we don't apportion blame or liability, and we will never do that. We're here to report facts, and those facts can be painful and difficult, but nevertheless, they are facts, and they're there for one purpose, one purpose only, and that is to capture the safety learning and to enable us to make recommendations for the improvement of railway safety in the future. And clearly the hope then is that the report into the incident at Carmont will result in a step change into, I suppose, assessment of the risk posed by weather, climate change, design changes. Are there any other incidents that would stand out for you as kind of key learning moments for the rail industry? Many, many. But uh, if I if I limit myself to the a period of time when RAIB has been in existence, uh, I could point to a number. And one that always comes to my mind, because I was the inspector who carried out the investigation, was investigation into the death of two teenage girls at Elsinham in 2005. Now, they, Elsinham is a, it's a station in Essex, and it has a pedestrian crossing. And the two young girls rushing for a train and they waited for a train to pass and then walked onto the crossing and a train came the other way and they were both killed. Now that was quite a big moment for the industry. It was very early in the existence of the RAIB. It was our first high profile investigation, but it highlighted the need for the industry to think very carefully about the systematic management of risk at level crossings. It was already understood Level crossings are a high risk factor, but there tended to be a feeling that, well, the railway was a victim here and that it was the behaviour of people at level crossings uh, that was something that was difficult to manage. And we, I, I think we helped to influence the change of thinking in that area, that risk, risk at level crossings needs to be managed. They, they are designed to be used by members of the public. And there you have to think you have to think very carefully about how people perceive them, the safety measures in place. So that was that was the first one that, that springs to mind, Catherine. Mm-hmm. A few years later, we saw the derailment of a um, Pendolino at Grey Ring in Cumbria, um, train en route from Euston to Glasgow Central. And it derailed on a set of defective points. That really was quite a moment for the industry. Um, It quite clearly indicated a problem, not only with the design of the points, but the way those points were being managed, those assets were being managed, the way they were being inspected and maintained. So that was quite a big moment. And as it happens, we didn't see another fatal train accident uh, between uh, Grey Rig in 2007 and the accident at Carmont in uh, 2020. So it was a, a 13-year gap. Uh, but nevertheless, quite a, quite a moment for the industry and brought about some important change, design change, a real real change on the ground. Mm-hmm. And what do you think, the 13-year gap, what, what do you think was the reason that there was that kind of 13-year period without a fatal accident? Well, I think the, I think the rail industry has come an awful long way. It had a terrible spell in the late 20th century in the first you know the very beginning of the 21st century so we had Southall, Labrook Grove, Hotters Bar, Selby, a whole series of quite nasty accidents and I think the reason that after Grey Rig we had such a long period without another fatal train accident it's down to a number of factors one being technology marching on so we've seen the introduction of the train protection warning system, uh, which has greatly reduced the risk associated with signals past danger. We've seen improved crashworthiness of rolling stock. In other words, rolling stock is better able to withstand collision and derailment than it was in the past. And we've seen quite a lot of good progress in the areas of systematic safety management. And I'm sure that's a factor driver management, driver training, risk assessment, all of the factors that that, that really make a difference to the uh, safety levels on, on, the, on the rail industry. So a whole range of factors have come into play. But it has been a long and improving trend. 
certainly since the Second World War, we know we've seen right to right to the current time, we've seen the le- the number of people killed in train accidents has reduced dramatically. So yeah, I, I some of it's a lot of it's technology, but I think some of it is down to the human factories about systematic management of risk. Mm-hmm. Perhaps in a way that the railway wasn't quite able to do in the past. Now, we don't only work in the heavy rail sector, and I, I, I also did want to point out that, that the tram tragedy at Sandylands 2016, when a tram overturned on a corner because it was going too fast, and, and that, that resulted in, in, in fatalities and terrible injuries, and that was quite a big moment for the RAIB, but also for the tramway sector. Uh, and they've really got so much better now at assessing their risks. Uh, they're looking at technologies for automatic braking. All sorts of developments have moved on. So that that was, if, you, if Ladbroke Grove was a seismic shift for the for the mainline industry, Sandylands was a big, big shift for the tramway sector. And to what extent? Um, I'm just thinking when you're talking about these specific examples there. Um, obviously, it seems terrible that things have to go wrong for changes to be made but I know that's the case in a lot of different scenarios and you know to what extent do things have to go wrong for the problems to be noticed if that makes sense and how many disasters actually are averted because people are doing good work that we don't see how does that balance work if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense I um in the past I've made a uh, presented a number of papers on the theme of investigating accidents before they happen mm-hmm. sounds a bit nuts really but it isn't because one quite shocking theme that comes out of our work is how often when you look at an accident with the benefit of hindsight of course but you look at an accident and you see all sorts of signals that something was wrong uh, rarely say they're foreseeable but you can see that the signals, uh, I would call them leaning ind- leading indicators that something may go wrong, are so often there. And I think the industry needs to train itself. It's almost a cultural shift to think about how it looks for these so-called weak signals that tell you something isn't quite right uh, before the accident occurs. And I think you can, the sort of systematic Causal analysis is what we call it, but basically the why because questioning that we go through to, to identify the cause of an accident. You can equally apply those before an accident has occurred. You can say, well, how could an accident occur? It's just looking at it the other way around. How could an accident occur? And you can ask the same sorts of questions. But you have to be willing to ask those questions. You have to be willing to learn. From what you you know, it, it's you've got not only to have the ability to ask these questions, but the willingness to to ask them because sometimes the answers can be a bit difficult. So, moving on from there, I mean, I suppose that so underpinning all that is this notion of management assurance. It all sounds very boring. It's about people with clipboards and doing audits. It is. It's much more than that. Management assurance is about how managers convince themselves that their railway is operating safely. Audit, formal audit is part of it, but so much about it is looking for these weak signals. And you do that by talking to people, looking at the mm. data, really understanding about what, what's going on on construction sites, in signal boxes, in control rooms, in management boardrooms. But really asking those questions and trying to get under the, under, under the skin of what's going on in your business. I'm quite passionate about the need to look for accidents before they've occurred, not after they've occurred. Yeah, and I suppose in a strange way, you never actually see physically see the benefit of that work because what it's doing is causing accidents not to happen, which is a great thing. So in itself, obviously, that's brilliant. But the outworking of that is avoiding a problem rather than having a yeah. concrete. But that's obviously a great problem to be avoiding. I, I often get asked, it's not an unreasonable question, how many accidents have been avoided due to the work of the RAIB? And the answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. How can you possibly know? Because I, if I had a thing called a counterfactual machine, I could climb in it 
and then look at an alternative scenario when we hadn't investigated an accident. Yeah. And, and of course, you don't know for sure. It's impossible. What you can see, it's less quantitative, but what you, in a qualitative sense, you can see change that is happening due to learning from accidents, not always from RAIB investigations, but network rail, for example, train operators, ORR, they all investigate in different ways, but they all investigate. And you can see things that have changed because the railway does keep changing, which is a good thing. It's got the culture. It is willing to change. It doesn't always change as fast as maybe I'd like to see it. But, hey, I come at it from one point of view. But um, the railway is implementing change. And that change, I'm sure, is bringing about improvements. Mm -hmm. On that note, I suppose, um, as you are soon to retire and you're you're kind of looking back over the last four decades since you joined the real industry, what would you say some of those key improvements are when it comes to safety? Well, let's start with, we haven't touched on track worker safety, but I'm, I'm sure that NCE would be very interested track worker safety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I joined the industry in 1982. And in the following year, 1983, which if you, if you like my first full year, 28 railway workers died doing their job. Now, we've seen that reduce dramatically, not as far as we would like. In 2021, um, sorry, the year 2020 to 21, you know, that number had reduced down to three. That's still far too many. But nevertheless, we have seen real improvements in that area. Now, what's driven that improvement? Well, it has to be said, a large part of it is technology. You know, it's automation and maintenance, for example. You need less people and more machines out on the track. And that's got to be good. If you can keep people away from trains, that's got to be a good thing. But there have there is progress. We are making progress in the area of worker safety. When it comes to train safety and train accident risk, I mean, the big changes we've seen have been driven by technology, the train protection and warning system. It's related to rolling stock, it's more resilient in case of collisions and, 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 and derailment. We've seen modern signalling systems. We've seen a whole range of technological improvements. We've got the um, GSMR radio system now, which has averted some very serious accidents in the time of the RAIB. Technology has driven that, but the industry itself has also brought about very significant changes in the way safety is viewed. And I, if I compare 1982 with today, I say one of the most vivid changes is the, the greater appreciation across the industry of the need to look beyond individual errors or failings. We've gone out, we got out of the mindset that said, someone made a mistake and there was an accident. And the answer is to brief people not to make the mistake. We've gone way beyond that. We're beginning to view people as part of the wider system and the way that people interface with machines, the way those People's performance can be affected by a whole range of factors such as fatigue, uh, well-being, a whole range of factors, mental health, all of these. So we're beginning to get far, far more deep thinking about the way we manage the human factor. And I think that is a change. Uh, that's a very significant change. And I have no doubt that it, that has also contributed to the very significant improvement in railway safety in the 40 years I've been part of this wonderful industry. Yeah, it sounds like lots of really good changes. Um, and as you step away and and kind of look at the sector going going forward, what do you see as the main hurdles, I suppose, for the real sector, but also for the construction sector in general? Um, you know, what, what do those industries need to be addressing in terms of improving safety and fully embracing that safety culture going forward? Well, we've already talked about the challenge for construction industry highlighted by Carmont. Our report, as well as reporting on the absence of a 
structured process for assessing the, the, the effect of changes made to the design during construction. That's one element. But we've also identified some very serious areas concerned about as-built drawings and health and safety files. Now, this isn't, this isn't the sexy end of civil engineering, but it's absolutely vital to get these basics right. Uh, and, and, and this is why I hope that Carmont, the implications of Carmont, much, much wider than the rail industry. And it's, it's, it's looked at right across the civil engineering sector. So that, that's a civil engineering element. More generally, there, I think there are a number of barriers that remain. We've come a long way, but there are some quite important barriers. One is culture, safety culture. Now, what does safety culture mean? Well, 10, 20 years ago, I think people thought that safety culture was, it was about having, you know, um, a suggestion box and way of reporting unsafe conditions in the depot or slip and trip hazard and these sorts of things. And that's all important stuff, but that's not safety culture. The real mark of safety culture is a culture where people will report their own mistakes. That's when you know you've got it right. When people feel they're able to say, do you know what? I made a mistake and I got away with it, but I could have hurt myself or I could have hurt someone else. And I want other people to learn the lesson from my mistake. Now, that sort of, that's in depth. That's that's deep safety culture. And we got some way, I think, in the rail industry to get there. Self-reporting mistakes, to me, that's like holy grail. But it matters and it makes a huge, it would make a huge difference. There are other barriers. And one of the barriers to safe behaviours that we see time and time again is embarrassment. It's very simple. People are embarrassed to follow process if your mates aren't following process. Let's take safety critical communications. We've come across safety critical communications as a factor in a number of our investigations. Very often they're very poor. Now we need to look at lessons learned in the aviation sector. If you watch the way or listen to the way that air traffic control and air crew communicate, very often you're looking at air crew who do not speak English as a first language. And yet communications very often are crystal clear. And they've made safety critical, critical communications the norm. So it's embarrassing if you don't speak in the prescribed manner. We're in the opposite side. We're still struggling in certain sectors, particularly when you look at engineering activities and the interface between operators and people out on site, on work sites. We still got this embarrassment barrier and we need to break through that. And I'm going to now quickly mention one, which is it was highlighted by our Rochford investigation. And this is about the need for mutual respect within diverse teams. We have all sorts of diversity on construction sites, engineering sites, diversity of race, background, employer. We've got people on permanent contracts, people on short-term contracts, people on contingent labour contracts. We've got a whole range of people, different backgrounds and different contractual arrangements. However, their safety relies on each other communicating effectively to each other and that mutual respect for each other made the point. I can't make it too strongly. We need to break through some of these barriers, cultural barriers, racial barriers, uh, misunderstandings between different employers, and ensure that on these complex sites, this diversity of workforce, that we get, these, they get this culture right. But there's other stuff there we need to do on on the software side, there's more we need to do to ensure that the railway can deliver softwares that does what we think or whatever the client thought that it should be doing. In other words, the reliable delivery of software has got to be something for the future. We've come across software as a factor in a number, luckily, near-miss incidents, not accidents, but the potential for a wrong-side failure or, more likely, a, an accident caused by an unintended consequence of a feature of software design really does worry us. And I hope no one would think I'm exaggerating the risk. You only have to look at the 
the saga of the 737 MAX. And it's all there. The, the potential for software design not to, to operate in a way that wasn't perhaps ever envisaged by either by the designers or by the end user. So that's an area of challenge for the future. As the industry automates, I think we also have to think about the relationship between people and machines. Mm. There's more thinking to be done on that. If you're taking more and more away from the human being, how do you ensure that the human being isn't left monitoring a machine? And, and, and because of one thing that human beings are not good at is monitoring. We're very good at problem solving, but we're not mm. good at monitoring a machine which operates efficiently 99.99% of the time. Yeah. We've got to think that one through. And last, but not least, because uh, it really is important, valuing the people who actually deliver on the ground. Engineering and operations, the same problem. I think we really do have to think about how we keep the best people on the front line and they don't get sucked off into head office functions mm -hmm. because where we really need the best people is out on the front line delivering good quality operators, engineers, whatever level. And I'd love to see that in the future, keeping people on the front line. So there you are. Those are, those are some of the challenges. I could, I could talk far longer, but perhaps it wouldn't be appropriate. But I, I see those as concerns for the future. And I hope beyond my retirement, the industry will make strides in addressing each of those areas. Yeah, those are, I think, some really useful, specific focuses. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you very much, Simon, for joining us today. It's been really interesting, really good to explore the intricacies of the derailment at Carmont in a bit more detail um, and to explain the work of the Real Accident Investigation Branch. We wish you all the best for your retirement as well and to our listeners, join us again soon for another episode of the Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash the Engineers Collective.